0: Just over a hundred years before. And it was in that process that Assyria came to the very gates of Judah and were taunting King Hezekiah whenever God protected them by miraculously destroying the Assyrian army and sending the Assyrian king running for his life. Now it seems like Habakkuk fears that God's justice means that this time, just Judah, might be removed from the face of the earth rather than simply reproved for their sins. In other words, he's not sure that God, given what he has just heard in verses 5 to 11, is going to save them like he did back in the days of King Hezekiah. Notice our section begins in verse 12, saying that God established them being Babylon for reproof. And then it ends, if you'll look down to the end of of that section in 2.1, where it says, Habakkuk will wait and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now we'll get there in a second, but that word for complaint is also the same word for reproof in verse 12. And so I believe that it begins and ends this section with this focus on the reproof that is coming from the hand of God. How are we to understand? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? In fact, I I believe that when Habakkuk asks in verse 13, why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he, that he's actually concerned with this, whether or not God will annihilate his people. Whether or not they will absolutely just be overwhelmed by the judgment of God being unleashed on earth. Now our big idea is this. If you're writing notes, a great thing to write down. It's that our merciful God will not allow his people to be swallowed up in judgment. Our merciful God will not allow his people to be swallowed up in judgment. And we're going to see this in a number of ways. First, we see in verse 12... Habakkuk clings to the rock amidst the chaos of his life. Habakkuk clings to the rock amidst the chaos of this life. Now you'll remember that God just told Judah that Babylon was coming. He was going to be like an an eagle swift to devour is the fulfillment of the promise where God said, I'm going to bring judgment upon you, my people, if you sin against me. And in Deuteronomy 28, 49, he said that he would bring uh, judgment through an eagle that would come down and swoop down and take them. But here in this declaration, it's interesting, it almost seems like he's telling his people or, or Habakkuk is claiming that because he knows who God is, that he's going to be lifted up on those eagle's wings. The eagle's wings meant for judgment are actually going to work out for his mercy. I don't know if you've ever felt like Habakkuk did. In this moment, you remember that he prayed for justice. Ever done that? Prayed for justice? Prayed for God's answer to some prayer, to something that you have begged him for time and time again? And then God answered your prayer. And he brought that thing that you asked for, like Habakkuk. But here, Habakkuk, what he received was a vision of terrifying justice. He got what he prayed for. Habakkuk prayed for mercy, I believe, when he saw God's justice, he had a heart change. He said, I, don't, I want justice, but I don't want that much justice, right? And so here, what we find is, is that Habakkuk sees an answer to his prayer, and he's terrified before God. And on the heels of this prayer for justice, he prays to God in verse 12. Look, look there at what he says again. It's a beautiful prayer. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Now Habakkuk prays to God on behalf of either Judah or the righteous remnant. Uh, There's disagreement as to what's going on here. It seems in some way that he's speaking to all of Judah because all of Judah was uh, committing, it seems like, violence against one another in verses 1 to 4. But it seems here that, that he's asking a kind of rhetorical question in verse 12 that's zeroing in on their unique, special relationship to God in redemptive history. Habakkuk says, God... We have history. I know that judgment's coming, but don't forget, we, we have history. A, a special, unique relationship that is different from the nations. I know there's a sense maybe in which you love all peoples, but you love us uniquely. We see this when Habakkuk says, God is everlasting. That is a Hebrew word that can mean different things. It can mean that someone is eternal, eternal or that someone is, is ancient or just really old. And, and all of those would be true of God. Uh, God, of course, is the ancient of days. He is the eternal one. He is the one who alone is uncreated. He is the source of all that lives. There is no good. There is no thing that exists that did not come from the creative word act of God. And yet here I, I think that, though all of these are true, that this particular use of everlasting is pointing to God's eternal purposes uniquely experienced through God's elect people, Israel, in history. He's saying, I have been working through you. You've been working through us, our people, since the ancient of times, through the fathers that came before us. Even that word, Lord, did you notice how it's in all caps? If you see Lord in your Bibles in the Old Testament in all caps, it's actually telling you that it's translating a special name of God, Yahweh. It is the covenant name for God that describes that special relationship between Israel and their God, Yahweh. He is their God and they are His people. See, this is the same God who made covenants with Abraham and Jacob and Israel and then David. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to raise up an offspring from the line of King David, who is from Judah. And he would have an eternal throne over God's eternal kingdom. But God's sweeping judgment through Babylon in verses 5 to 11 sounds like the kind of judgment that might annihilate this people of God. Notice how he emphasizes his unique, intimate relationship with God, though. Did you see that? He says, Oh, Lord, my God my holy one and when God called Israel out of slavery in Egypt in Exodus 6 7 God made a special relationship with Israel do you remember what he said to them he said in Exodus 6 7 I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And Habakkuk says the coming judgment is really terrifying, but, but you are still my God. That hasn't changed. See, my covenant-keeping God, the one who is known to be holy, 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 absolutely pure in all of his ways, including your justice and your reproofs, there is no error with you. There is no wrong with you. See, my only hope amidst the coming judgment is that you show me steadfast love in a way that sets me apart from the nations. It sounds like no one escapes. But, but did you see what Habakkuk says on the heels of 5 to 11? He says, we shall not die. Well, look like everybody dies. But Habakkuk knew that, that Jews would die. I don't think that he's saying here that they are immortal. That's not his main point here. He, he would die, but Judah would not die out. See, I think he's speaking on behalf of, of Judah, the nation, Israel. He's saying we will not die out. We will not be swept off the face of the planet. God saved us from Assyria, and God will save us from Babylon. See, God purposed Babylon to reprove Judah, to, remo- uh, to reprove Judah, not remove Judah. I think that's what he's saying. Uh, I, have, I have sent Babylon to reprove you in your sin, but not to remove you from the face of the earth. See, God purposed Babylon for this. In fact, God uses the same word for reproof to describe the unique way that God would discipline King David's greater son when he sinned, when God made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel seven fourteen to 15. There, God says, I'm going to reprove your son David, but David, know this, it's going to be different than the way that I reprove others like Saul. He says there in 2 Samuel 7, 14 to 15, I will be to him like a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline or reprove him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, I love verse 15, it's a good thing there's a but there, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. It's a unique kind of reproof and love and discipline that he promises. God doesn't say, because I love David's future son, I'm not going to discipline him. I'm going to neglect him. I'm not going to correct Places where he's wrong, he says, because I uniquely love David's son, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but I will not remove my steadfast love from him. I love the, the word for steadfast love here. It's hesed. It speaks of a covenantal kind of love, a special relationship that God had with David and with David's son and with the people of God. Now, this may be too strong here, but I, I love what commentator Theodore Leitch says as he thinks about this prophet praying to God as his rock in the midst of the terror of this chaos. He says this, "'Tossed about by agonizing doubts and fears of the chaos, "'the prophet clings with the hands of faith "'to the firm, immovable rock of ages.'" You hear me? If you live in a world that is chaotic, and anybody here want to testify that the world looks a little bit chaotic right now, you know what you need? You don't need Fox News. You need the Rock of Ages. You don't need CNN. You need the Rock of Ages. You need the eternal God who has eternal purposes for you that will be brought to an end. See, he hides himself, this prophet, in the cleft of the rock of God's character and covenant amidst the the coming judgment now catch this Christian there's good news here we actually have a new and better covenant in Christ that promises that even on our worst day anybody here had a bad day I'm talking like you were late to work and your car battery was dead and then you got mad at your wife for some reason that didn't help things And, you know, your dog pooped on the carpet. I mean, like, bad days happen, right? There are days that are bad because the world is broken, and there are days that are bad because we sin. On your worst day, the day that you don't want anybody to see or know about, God sees and catches this. We are told in the new covenant, the judgments that he brings, even on our worst day, God's discipline for us is that of a father, not an enemy. That's good news. When you come to your heavenly father in Christ... You are coming to just that, a father with a unique relationship who is not disciplining you as one who lives outside the house, but who lives in the same house. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God, but as John Owen says, it's different for God's people. God's discipline for his people is like the discipline of a father for a child that he loves. Hebrews twelve six says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son he receives. In other words, those those things maybe in your life today that look so difficult and hard that maybe you want with your earthly eyes to see as evidences of the fact that God doesn't love you, God says, actually, those are proofs that I care about you because guess what? I'm disciplining you and I'm holding you close and I will not let you go. Know this, God will deal with our sin because he loves us too much to leave us in it. That's why Jesus had to die for you. But his posture is always that of a loving father to those in Christ. Never forget that. You know, it was just uh, not long ago that I had to discipline one of my kids. Um, Might have even been this morning. But uh, we have discipline in my household uh, periodically. You might not believe this, but I hate to discipline my kids. Uh, That's probably not a good thing. I just don't like to take things away from them. They know this. They use it for manipulative purposes all the time. But literally they know that like for me to take something from them actually I think hurts me way worse than it hurts them. And the only reason that we would ever practice discipline is because there is some greater good or purpose that we want for them that we don't want them to settle with brokenness in this world. That's always the way that God deals with us. We are in the world. We are not of the world. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. God has a unique love for you in Christ. Thomas McComsky writes this in the Covenant of Promise. He says, Israel's experience with God was to be an in intimate relationship with God. The Lord would be their God, providing them with the protection and benefits expected in such loving relationships. This great statement is the heart and soul of the promise because of all of the gracious benefits of the promise. They derive from the loving power and volition of God expressed in intimate and mysterious relationship with Him that the people of faith enjoy. But notice what happens in verse 13. He moves from his unique relationship with God, the Father, to a lament or a complaint it's a second complaint the first was in verses 1 to 4 but here he asked this question how can a holy just God allow the wicked to swallow up the man more righteous than he how does that work I mean he's holy so how can he allow wickedness to swallow up those who are more righteous than he you'll notice how Habakkuk's question moves from the character of God down to injustice that surrounds him. He just said that his eternal covenant-keeping God is holy. But now he's asking an honest theological question concerning God's use of Babylon. Uh, Look what he says in verse 13. He he, he asks this. He says in verse 13, You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Of course, Psalm 5, 5 5-7 speaks to something that might be inspiring this question. There the psalmist says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil will not sojourn with you. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God is holy and utterly pure morally, so much that he can't even look on evil. So how can God... Idly look and remain silent as the wicked, that's Babylon, swallow up the man more righteous than he. That's Judah and and maybe the the righteous remnant. See, God has a purer eyes than to see evil. That word that he uses to describe pure is the same word often used uh, for, for something that is pure or ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, something that's used in the temple or the tabernacle. And there's a sense in which God's justice is pure. It's not tainted by sin. what's interesting is there's a lot of discussion about justice in our culture these days. But so often even the definitions that we are using of justice in our culture are worldly. And they're not being defined in the terms that scripture would define justice So often they're marred by some kind of lack of fairness or blindness to uh, showing uh, privilege to, to one group or another. That's not the picture of justice according to God. His is untainted by sin and perfect in all of its ways. His justice actually is the justice by which all other definitions of justice are judged. But here we see Habakkuk confessing confidence in God's utter justice. And he picks up a fishing metaphor that he's going to use through the end of verse 17. He does it in the second question. Why do you look idly at the wicked swallowing up the man more righteous than he? I'm sure you've had similar questions. When it seems as though the wicked have the advantage over those more righteous than them. Uh, Maybe you wonder why you struggle financially. While really bad people seem to do well. Sometimes really gross people, right? People that do gross things. You're like, how did they end up doing so well financially? I mean, it looks like God's just blessing them. Or maybe you've been faithful in your dating relationships and you're still single, but you've seen other people who like seem foolish and yet they sort of accidentally ended up in what seems to be a godly relationship. Kids are coming. Things seem great for them. Or maybe you've had a bully at school who seems to have lots of friends And life seems great for them while you're on the outside. And you're wondering, like, God, are you just unjust? It seems like the wicked do better than those who are more righteous. And I don't think here Habakkuk is saying that he believes in some kind of godly karma, where there's always sort of a tit for tat in the relationship between what God does and and what we do. But it does seem that here he is saying, I have a bigger question about how justice works in your sovereignty. If you're a sovereign, then how can you allow these wicked people to harm those who are more righteous than they are? Have you switched sides? Will you ever bring judgment to the unjust who are carrying out your justice? Of course, you have to ask, what did Habakkuk say again about Judah in verses 1 to 4? Wasn't it that they were unjust? Wasn't it that they were committing violence against one another before Babylon brought violence against them? Weren't they already ignoring the Torah? So one has to ask, does Habakkuk speak for all Judah, including those who do violence, or is he speaking for a righteous remnant? I think it could be either or both. I don't think Habakkuk sees Judah as innocent, but comparatively, isn't he saying that we're not quite as bad as Babylon? I mean, they're really wicked it's kind of like us saying, "Look, we're not as bad as the Nazis. Not that bad. We're, we're pretty good, basically, compared to the Nazis." See God, here I think we see one reality is that He doesn't grade on a curve. Anybody had a professor grade on a curve before? Uh, I was in a Hebrew class one time where the professor said a sixty in this class is an A, and I remember thinking, Psst, "I can get a sixty on my worst day." I was wrong. <laughs> it was an honest curve. God doesn't grade on curves. He is perfect in his justice and his righteousness and his requirements. And it's only the mercy of God that enables a holy and just God to engage sinners like us. See, God's just standards are perfect and no one can stand on their own two feet in his presence. If we're trying to do that, it's always sinking sand. We need a better rock to stand on. We need the rock who is Christ. Now here Habakkuk says, God, it feels like the curse is worse than the disease. And he uses this fishing metaphor that I think is building off that swallowing up. They're swallowing up all the nations in verses 14 to 17. And here he's going to describe a wicked fisherman, Babylon, who is eating mankind, who really is pictured as being less than human. So notice third. He, he's really asking, will the fishermen leave any fish behind, specifically Judah? Uh, here, Babylon is the fisherman, and the peoples are the nations seen as fish. Now, Babylon was well acquainted with the sea. They were known to be associated with the sea. In fact, comment, one commentator, Theodore Leish, recorded this. He said, in one relief, the major Babylonian deities, then Shamash, Enlil, and Marduk, drag a net in which they captured their enemies as they squirm. See, Babylon, in this picture, looks a lot like their false gods. They, they become like that which they worship. They are dragging their nets for their fish-like enemies. So notice in verse 14 where he is speaking to God. Habakkuk says, God, you allow the, dehuman, the dehumanizing, dehumanizing of humanity. Look what he says there again. He says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. You'll remember the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis 1:26, it, it opens up with a real unique view of humanity. See, so there we find the origin of humanity according to the God of the Bible, according to Yahweh. And he says that. And and my understanding of creation, the way that I created the world, I created all of humanity in my image and after my likeness. That's language that usually was reserved for kings and queens, but here it's utilized for all of humanity. And he says, I have given all of them the task of exercising dominion or kingship in all of the earth. I've made these people to image me. They are the, the culmination and climax of my good creation. And when you look at them, you ought to see something of me. But notice here that mankind has lost that dignity. They become more like fish. Fish of the sea and like crawling things, which is another word in this context for things that float or or crawl in the sea. And they have no ruler. There is no dominion that's being exercised. In 2 Samuel 23, 3, David As he was dying, talked about what a good king looks like according to God. He says this, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, here's that rock showing up again. He says, when the one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Good leadership is life-giving. Good leadership is just And it fears God. See, good rulers bring about a life that is vivacious. And bad leaders bring death. But here the state of affairs in Habakkuk, not just for Judah, but for all of humanity, looks pretty bleak. Did you notice that? Humanity looks more like fish than humans. The irony is that God had chosen Judah to uniquely image him before the nations. And his law or his Torah demonstrated his just character. I'd love to talk all about the beauty of God's law and the fact that if you were to break it up and ask how do we summarize it, it really comes down to a love of God and a love of man. You love God and you love your neighbor. That's the fulfillment of the law according to the Old Testament. So that the law is one of love. But Habakkuk began his complaint with Judah, not obeying the law and not practicing justice or righteousness, but treating one another with violence as though they were less than human. That really is what sin is. It's treating God less than God and other humans as less than human, which means that they are being treated as less than image bearers of the living God. And here's the reality. Every human is created in the imago dei or the image of God. God created us with a certain dignity. And and maybe some of you have lost sight of that this morning and just need to be reminded of how God has created you. Christian and non-Christian alike has a, a dignity that comes from their creator that you can't run from. That doesn't mean that you can't not fulfill all of the destiny that God's created you for in that image, but you have a dignity as a human that is inescapable. You'll notice here that this mankind, they had lost that. And maybe you feel like you've lost that or you've forgotten it. Some have tried to trace this dignity that we have into a bucket of certain attributes such that if you have more of this sort of key to what it means to being a dignified human then you're more human, and if you have less of it, then you're less, and then that's going to affect the way that we treat you. We saw this horrific reality in Nazi Germany where Jews literally would depict, uh, 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 I mean, uh, Nazis would literally depict Jews and their art as rats, as something that is less than human. You might say, that sounds horrible. We did the same thing with African Americans in our own country, treating them as less than human, not treating them with the dignity that God created them with. We've seen this today in the way that we allow abortions, saying that babies don't have enough development to have human dignity. We see it with mental disorders. If you don't have a certain mental or cognitive ability, then you don't have enough dignity to be treated as a full human. We have fewer Down syndrome babies today. Did you know that? Beautiful humans. Fewer of them today. You know why? because we have tests now that can tell if there's a down syndrome baby and you have the right to be able to actually put that baby to death because they have a higher chance of having down syndrome and that's why we have fewer down syndrome babies today why can we do that because we're saying that there's some kind of lesser dignity that is given to them some cultures older people are euthanized because they because they can't participate fully in society they are a burden they're too expensive And in all of this, people are evaluating the dignity of humanity apart from the intrinsic worth connected to being created in creator God's image. I don't want you to forget this. You were made to image the God who created you. That is an incredible kind of dignity that no boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or friend or job or vocation or success or trophy can give you. That is a value that comes from heaven down. In Dignity and Dynasty, John Kilner, who approaches this topic, he writes this. He says, being created in God's image means that all people have a sacredness to them independent of actual attributes. Do you catch that? By the nature of your very being, you have a sacredness to you. A person cannot be demeaned, even another person's thoughts, without that constitut- constituting an unholy affront to God. Colossians 1.15 tells us something glorious, though. While it might be hard sometimes to, to know what the destiny of what it means to live up to the image of God looks like, we have been given one who has shown us perfectly. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and in Christ, we see the goal or destiny of humanity ruling and reigning as we were created to. You want to know what it looks like to be human? Do You want to know what it looks like for your brothers and sisters in Christ to be human? Look to Christ. That's where you see what humanity revving on all cylinders looks like. It's in Jesus. So Christian, we see the dignity and destiny of every human, and we seek to live justly as a reflection of the character of Jesus who came to lay down his life to give life to others. He's not like Babylon by the way, this isn't just good theology for culture. This is good theology for the house. I don't know if y'all realize this. Um, I was in uh, the politics class recently, and Steve Doobie gave this great illustration about the way that he was trying to explain to one of his kids how important it was that he loved his wife, Jody way more than he loved them. He said, if I'm gonna love you best, I need to love your mom most. I I think that's just kind of right, right? you have a certain way in relationships where you need to make sure you're giving due priority to the things that God has created relationally. And and, and he would also say, and maybe he did say, that if you really want to love your wife best, then you need to love Jesus most. See, we love Jesus most so that we can love others best. My guess is if you have a broken relationship today, you might want to trace the breadcrumbs back to your relationship with Christ and where that's at. Husbands, you need to love Jesus most to love your wife best. And you need to love your wife more than you love your kids to love them best. There's a priority in love and justice. And if we get the order out of whack, we will be both unjust and unloving. See, we don't worship Marduk, who dehumanizes humanity like Babylon. We worship Christ. in verses 15 to 16, we see that Habakkuk shifts his focus to these fishermen. Notice what he says in verses 15 to 16. He says, Babylon, the fisherman, consumes the nations and worships its nets. That's what they're like in verses 15 to 16. Now, I don't know if you've ever been fishing or if you love fishing. I like to deep sea fish. My son Johnny loves to fish like any kind of fishing. Like if you want to go fishing, he's game any day, any time. He loves to go to his grandmother's house and fish from like dawn to dusk. The only thing he likes to take a break for is to eat and to tell you stories about the fish that he caught. Gets super excited about it. you are like, oh, there's another one. And that's exactly the kind of picture that we get here of Babylon. But it's dark. Because the thing that they're reeling in is humans. You'll notice in verse 15 he says this. He says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. This commentary, O. Palmer Robertson, talks about how apt this metaphor of a fisherman for Babylon is. He says this, it's apt not just figuratively, but literally. Because the Babylons carried on the Assyrian tradition of actually taking a hook through the sensitive lower lip of the captives and stringing them single file. So it literally looked like they were pulling in a school of fish connected by a line. Babylonians literally looked like they were hooking their captives. It says here though that he he caught them in their drag nets and he rejoices like a crab fisherman off the deadliest catch landing a huge haul of Alaskan crabs. Did did you see that? He's like, look at this, another load. And he's rejoicing, he's glad over it. But did you notice that it draws him to worship, but his worship isn't directed towards God? No, his worship is directed towards what? His dragnet. See, Jews were not supposed, or or were not surrounded by dragnets. Habakkuk wouldn't have seen uh, dragnets every day. That was actually a symbol of, Babylon's specific technology it was an advance of their wisdom and power it was human ingenuity it was a picture of human confidence and human wisdom rather than the wisdom and power of God and take note these fishermen give no glory to God for anything that has taken place now remember God says I raised up Babylon and as they seem unstoppable impervious to any kind of defense. In the midst of that, they give no credit to the God who empowers them, enables them, uses them, allows them to carry his purposes. Notice the the word for in verse 16. Verse 16 is explaining why they worship their nets. It says, for by them, he being Babylon lives in luxury and his food is rich. Now that phrase, lives in luxury, comes from the phrase for a, a fat portion, that could be a fat portion of, of, I guess, land or a fat portion like on a big steak. You know, when you get a good steak, it's nice and juicy. It's a fat piece. It's like cooked. It's crispy. You need to it's lunchtime. So, yeah, <clears throat> it's a good thing. But here, they, they have the best portion, and, and the fat was that good part or the large portion. And his food was also, notice, rich or plentiful. In other words, they consume the nation so they can live in luxury. They could live an opulent lifestyle. And MTV MTV Cribs, it's got nothing on the homes of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. You'll remember that his home, his palaces were famed. In fact, one of his gardens, the Hanging Garden, like that was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. Anybody here have a seventh wonder of the world in their house? Like this was a big deal. This is unparalleled kind of luxury that the Babylonians were famous for. And they got it because they took everything from the nations. All of this was purchased by the blood of their neighbors. But don't miss this. If Jesus is the image, sacrifice is the mission. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, sacrifice is the is the mission. It's not that we grow fat from others by taking what they have, but through giving sacrificially as Jesus did. See, Jesus did not come for what he could take, but for what he could give. He had need of nothing. And Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that this is the reason for the generosity of other Christians. He says this For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that grace, he's talking about specifically a, a, a generous giving in money. But he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He's not like the kings of the nations. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't come for what he needs from you. Jesus did not come because he needs you to like him. He didn't come because he was lonely. He had an eternal, perfect relationship with God from the beginning. He wasn't lacking in anything he had all things he came to give he came to sacrifice the world says take and rejoice and Jesus says lay down your life that you might receive eternal joy Jesus went first he gave all to seek justice and be generous give to what we love we give to what we love but notice also in verse 17 he asked a question Will Babylon's terror ever end? Will it ever end? And maybe that's you today in life, wondering if difficulties in your life will ever end. Will Babylon ever get full and stop the endless cycle of casting his net and killing nations forever again and again? You'll remember how we began. We began in verse 12 with the eternal God. And here we see Habakkuk again contrasting Babylon, that wicked nation that God raised up and permitted to bring justice to the nations. He contrasts that nation with the eternal, covenant-keeping, holy God of Judah. Babylon is not eternal like God. It will not continue unchecked. In fact, Babylon becomes a symbol and an arc take for idolatry. He, he is the one who will lead his people into... Uh, Babylon is a people who become a picture of what idolatry and opulence, bloodthirsty power looks like. Uh, We will see Babylon types arise again and again until Jesus comes back. We saw it in Egypt. We saw it in Assyria. We see it in Babylon. We'd later see it whenever Persia would rise to power. Later it would be Greece and then Rome. And then we know, of course, that other nations will arise. But here's where things get real. We know that their days are numbered. God tells Habakkuk that God will judge more righteous or less wicked nations, like Judah, through Babylon? Will God's mercy intervene, though, amidst this justice being unleashed through Babylon? Or will they utterly be consumed? I mean, this is really a brilliant question. Why? Do you know how Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, described himself to Moses? Moses? as he hid in the cleft of the rock while God's glory passed by him in Exodus 34, 6. God is handing him the law. And and, and he's showing his glory. It's passing before Moses. And he says to Moses, here's what I want you to know about me. Here's what I'm like. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now I don't know what you would think God would say if he were to show up and say, this is what I'm like. Maybe you would think stingy and absent, harsh and cold. But that's not what God says. He says he is what? Merciful and gracious. What a good God, the the law is being handed down. I'm a merciful and gracious God. That is first what I am like. I love that picture of God. Short of the incarnation and the transfiguration, this is a unique glory of God in the Bible in Exodus 34. It is a presentation of the very character of God. You ask, what is God like? The first words that drop out of his mouth are merciful and gracious. That's what I'm like. Now verse seven, I will bring about justice. But it's fascinating that in context, verse seven ends with God's justice being met out on iniquity, but almost as a necessary clarification as God's mercy radiates from these verses. The Puritans understood Exodus 34, 6 to 7 as a window in the very heart of God for his people. What is my heart like for my people? It is different. It is merciful and gracious. It's my heart for you. See, God is punishing Israel for injustice as the Babylonians are sweeping through and sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart desire is mercy for them, even in the midst of this. I love what Thomas Goodwin says. He explains the very heart of God this way. He says, my brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may, in some respect, said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute and that he meets and is even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him in in this justice, in this violent justice. He says, I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that, it is his nature and disposition. It is said that he does it with his whole heart. Love that. There's nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him in mercy. That's why Lamentation 3.33 says, he does not from his heart afflict or grieve the children of men. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy, he says this, it is with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as the expression in Jeremiah 32.41 says, and therefore acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange act in Isaiah 28, 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. And he brings a few other texts in here to say simply this. In Lamentations 333, God's revelation of himself and the scripture, God's demonstration of his deepest heart is this, what he delights to do and what is most natural to him and what is most natural to him is mercy. Punishment is unnatural. There's a fourth thing that we see here. Notice that Habakkuk says, I may not understand what's happening right now. He has yet to see Jesus. He only saw dimly. But he says, I will wait on God's reproof. Look at 2 1. Here's what he says. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post in my station. I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here he looks like somebody in the military who is stationed at a post. He cannot move. It's for the good of the kingdom and for the, the safety of a people. And he is waiting. He is waiting to hear back from God concerning his concern. He's willing to listen to God rebuke and change whatever wrongheaded thoughts he has about how to understand God's justice through unjust people. And maybe that's you today. You're, You're tired of waiting faithfully on God. You have more. You have Christ, but you're tired. There's no other God like your God who is merciful and gracious to his people who are in Christ. Let me just encourage you for that as you wait. He is merciful and gracious For you in Christ. We have received an answer that Habakkuk only longed to see in person. We have the work and person of Jesus Christ. See, these people that Habakkuk speaks of will find Babylon. They will give an answer to their creator God, as will Judah. But for Judah, God's mercy will triumph. It will triumph through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mercy triumphed over justice at the cross for those in Christ. The two met, mercy and justice at the cross, and we received mercy upon mercy in him. Now, a couple things that I want to just leave you with as we close. First, those who know mercy show mercy and fulfill the law of Christ. Those who know mercy show mercy and fulfill the law of Christ. If you want to know what it looks like to be a just Christian, it means that you are showing mercy to others, in particular, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the book of James says. Now, James speaks of how God's people should not show partiality in the body of Christ. To those who are poor, to those who are rich, to those who have jobs like them or hobbies like them, those who are different, those who are different in ethnicity, those who are different in age, we're not to show favoritism or impartiality in the way that we treat one another. We fulfill the royal law of Christ when we love one another. And in James 2.13, he explains this way. He says, for judgment, this is at the end of that conversation, for judgment is without mercy To one who has shown no mercy. You don't want that. But he says mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who know mercy show mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice in the way that we treat judgment and the way we treat others. We look like Christ when we show mercy. And a second application that might be a little more tenuous, but I'm going to step out this morning. In Matthew 4, 19 to 20, you'll remember what happens. Jesus actually comes to his disciples who happen to be what? Fishermen. And I find it interesting that when he shows up he comes up to him in verse 19 and he says follow me and I will make you what fishers of men not like Babylon <laughs> right not like Babylon but I'm going to make you fishers of men and in verse 20 he says immediately they left their nets and followed him same word here for nets as the Babylonians drag nets in the original Greek version of the Old Testament so not saying that these are strongly connected as they are, but the idea is here, at least, right? They are dropping their nets for these literal fish to fish after other people who do not know Christ. What is their posture towards those who do not know Christ? Is it that they are going to come to take from them and to rule over them? No, it's that they're going to lay down their lives for others. Following Jesus means sacrificing themselves for others. Following Jesus means actually going after those who are enemies of God to tell them about the glorious mercy that can only be found in Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. You will fish for men by laying down your lives that they may live instead of taking lives that you might be rich. That's this kingdom, different kind of kingdom, kingdom that loves to share Jesus with others. Who are you sharing Jesus with? Have you forgotten to share Jesus with your kids this morning, with your neighbors, with your coworkers? If you're following Jesus, it means you're a fisher of men. You've been signed up. Non-Christian, let me just ask you this. Maybe you're looking at the world around you and you think everything looks chaotic and out of control and you're wondering what God's doing up there. Well, I want you to know that God has raised up one greater than Babylon. That's King Jesus. He came and he was, lived for you a life that you could not live He obeyed God's perfect, just commands for you. He died the death that you deserved, absorbed the wrath that you earned for yourself. And he was raised from the dead to declare that if you put your faith in him, you can have the mercy of God. That's your answer from heaven. Put your faith in him. He's coming back. I want all of us to know that mercy only triumphs over justice for those who are in Christ. And for those who are not, all that awaits them is the net of Babylon and the wrath of God. Know this, our merciful God will not allow his people to be swallowed up in judgment. That's good news. Let's pray.